this is where one of my first medical traumas ended up happening. Right before I went under anesthesia, they actually almost operated on the wrong foot, but they also almost did the wrong procedure. And so I woke up from that surgery and I was, I was sharing a hospital room with another girl who was my age, who also had a surgery from the same surgeon earlier that day. And she was screaming and I was screaming and she was vomiting. I just remember waking up feeling like I woke up to a nightmare. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S., killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews, and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, RemediesCounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello, humanity. I'm Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews podcast. Growing up in an affluent community, but as the only non-white kid in her school, Rachel Winters learned early how social narratives, be they ethnic or medical, can have profound impacts on our life trajectory. Coming from a family of physicians with a better living through chemistry approach to medicine and pharmaceuticals, Rachel's trust in the medical system was deeply ingrained from an early age. Her father assured her that medications were safe and encouraged Rachel to not feel ashamed about taking pharmaceuticals. When Rachel had trouble sleeping, her mother shared her own sleeping medications. When Rachel had a foot issue and wanted a simple outpatient treatment, her father insisted on proven invasive and disabling surgery. So when Rachel's body became dependent on medication given for an erroneous diagnosis, and her foot surgery induced blood-curdling screaming pain, Rachel began to see the cavernous cracks in the healthcare system. She realized she had been repeatedly betrayed by so-called evidence-based medicine. In fact, healthcare is often decision-based evidence-making. When Rachel's family dismissed the medication side effects and her physical symptoms as psychological, the sense of medical and familial betrayal deepened. In part one of this interview, Rachel shares how her family of physicians shaped her trust in the scientific process and medical establishment. But it was her real world experience of multiple medical errors that opened her eyes to the reality of healthcare, big pharma, and the role of physicians in perpetuating profits over people. If you would like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and all of the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. If you need the support of an experienced counselor for your own encounters with medical error or for living with a chronic complex illness, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. And now here's my interview with Rachel Winters, and she is using a pseudonym to protect her identity and privacy and safety when she's in the healthcare system. And a word of caution that some folks may be triggered by Rachel's experience with the healthcare system. Great. 
Thanks, Rachel. Uh, so where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? So I grew up in a pretty affluent area, actually. So near San Francisco, California. And growing up um, was a mixed bag of, I, I would say, blessings and hardships because I grew up um, as the daughter of a physician who was very well respected in the community. My mother is a nurse and my grandfather was a renowned physician in Afghanistan, actually. So having that in our lineage, um, I grew up with kind of all of the benefits that come along with having a father in the medical system. So, um, you know, so that meant easy access to medicine, easy access to, to, you know, to treatments if I ever got sick. So that gave me kind of a sense of comfort. But another thing about me growing up is that I grew up in a very um, very affluent and very privileged white society where I was the only person in my entire elementary school with dark colored skin. And so that really profoundly affected um, my emotional and psychological development growing up because, you know, having um, quite dark skin and now my skin is lighter, but I had quite dark skin growing up. And so I was the target actually of racial bullying throughout many years, starting at age six up until um, kind of calmed down in high school. But definitely that left me with some emotional scars, I would say. So I was always an extremely shy, really quiet, um, but also very insightful and intelligent child. Like I was always scoring within the top 99% in all of my tests. I was um, actually selectively mute <laughs> for a period of time. So I did not speak for almost a year. How old were you when that happened? Um, it was about, I think I was about six or seven, I think from, yeah, around that age. So I think that had to do with the experience that I had feeling like I was finally starting to become aware of my identity in terms of the context of society. And then experiencing these racial differences made me feel really, um, gave me a lot of social anxiety. And so I was extremely anxious around other people and I didn't like to talk, but I was also very, um, very obedient, very creative, very insightful. How did you overcome the selective mutism? What got you out of that? I finally overcame the selective mutism around age seven or eight. I started slowly talking again. Um, I had a really amazing teacher who um, was just really patient with me. And so I finally started to talk again, but I was still always extremely shy, very quiet. And it took actually many <laughs> years and that impact um, followed me throughout my young, my teenage years and my young adulthood. So I struggled with uh, social anxiety for most of my childhood and most of my life. So social anxiety, lots of folks have experienced or may be experiencing it now. What's one sort of strategy or tool that you use that you find helpful? Well, right now, um, you know, since I, later on in life, I discovered strategies that, <laughs> that I now know are more helpful than the strategies that I was given back then. And so now um, I have become uh, introduced to, I think when I was around 22 or 23, I was introduced to practices of meditation. So like mindfulness meditation, I think Buddhism was the first type of meditation I was practiced, I was introduced to, and then I was introduced to Taoism. And so kind of, um, you know, sometimes I struggle to like always keep up with the practice all the time, but just to remind myself to keep my, when I start to feel anxious, to keep life in perspective, I think of a greater sense of perspective of the world and to just kind of recognize my thoughts without um, identifying with them so much. That kind of helps me to step outside of my 
anxiety and my perception of what others might think about me. Really, my first experiences with physicians when I was younger was extremely positive. And I would say that in the broader term of healthcare providers, I would put dentists into that category as well, because I always remember having really good experiences with the dentist because I always had really perfect teeth. And so I would, um, I would be very much praised for that. I, I took a lot of pride in taking care of myself and being pretty healthy, even from like a young age. And I was also extremely obedient and very trusting of the, um, of doctors. I never was one of those kids who was afraid of doctors. I didn't really have um, I didn't really have much fear, so I would sit quietly and get my shots. And I was also very lucky to never have any bad vaccine reactions, which I know, you know, some children do have bad vaccine reactions. So I never had those growing up. When I was, um, so growing up, my parents actually <laughs> gave me med medications and pharmaceuticals whenever there was anything wrong. So it was like there was never any attempt to do anything naturally, never any attempt to do anything alternatively. It was like, if you have a cold, you're taking cold medication, you're taking fever reducers. If you have a fever, if you're nauseous, you're taking Zofran. If you are in a pain level, like if my dad had a headache, he would take a Percocet. If you have a problem, you take a medication and better living through chemistry was kind of the philosophy that we would live by. Um, so it was kind of like very much that we can trust the FDA, that medications are very, very safe, that um, reactions to medications are so rare that they're virtually non-existent. In that sense, I always had really strong high level of trust and respect for doctors. I had good experiences, never had any reason to think that going to a doctor could result in a life-changing experience for the worse. Um, when that did eventually happen to me later on in life, it was just the most shocking paradigm shift that I could possibly imagine. Uh, the first experience that I had with medication that was more serious than Advil was that I started to be put on some sleeping medications when I was pretty young. So I had a hard time sleeping and my mother would um, give me Benadryl, which is, you know, thought to be a pretty mild medication. And I started to become kind of reliant on this and nobody in my family really saw it as being a problem. And so sometimes eventually it would kind of not work so well. And then when I got a little bit older, I had still a hard time sleeping. I think, it, again, I think it was the anxiety in my mind. I think that I would have so many thoughts going through my mind all the time and then the social anxiety. And I did struggle with depression as well. So that would keep me up at night. And then, um, I was introduced to Restorol, which is a sleeping medication. And so first, like, I think my mother would just give me like small amount of her sleeping medication, like a quarter of a pill. And then um, eventually it was like half a pill. And I remember, I think I was around maybe middle school, high school when that started happening. And I never really connected the dots, but looking back, I think that that made me feel just really kind of tired and groggy at school a lot of the time. But I felt like it was the only thing I could do to sleep. I felt like there was no other option because I was never really provided with like a, an alternative. It was like, oh, okay, you can't sleep here. Take this pill. That was kind of my first experience with continuous use of medication. And, um, and then it wasn't until later on where I was introduced to more medications. So the next thing that started happening was that um, I, at around age 13 or something, 13, 14, I started to have some, some shin splints and some problems with my feet. And at first, um, I thought it was just, you know, regular, we thought it was just growing pains. And so I got some orthotics and didn't really help so much. And then 
I continued to see podiatrists who are foot specialty doctors. And eventually, like the problem just kind of kept getting worse. And so what ended up happening is that I have something called um, flexible flat feet. So like over pronation in my arches. Uh, basically, I just was an extremely bendy, flexible person growing up. I had very stretchy, loose ligaments. Um, I don't think that I met the criteria exactly for Ehlers-Danlos syndrome because I, I didn't really have any additional symptoms. It was really just that I was extremely flexible, um, most notably so in my feet. And so because of that, it actually continuously got worse to the point where I was having really bad tendonitis in both of my feet. So the posterior tibial tendon, which runs from the inside of the arch, the up the leg was, and also below my arch was really just starting to ache and really hurt me. And it got worse and worse over months and over, I guess, a couple of years. And eventually it got to the point where I was in so much pain at the end of the day, just in my, in my feet and up my leg a little bit. So just that area on both feet. I remember getting to the level where um, I would come home at the end of the day. Um, by the way, taking Advil like 24 seven, like <laughs> around the clock Advil, my dad would always tell me like, don't, don't wait until you have pain, take the Advil. And so I was always taking Advil um, because he would tell me that that was actually preventative of inflammation and injury. And so I thought I was doing a good thing for myself by taking Advil. So I thought, you know, I'm taking care of myself by doing this. So, so it got so bad to the point where at the end of the day, I was literally crawling um, to the bathroom, like at, in the middle of the night, I couldn't walk because I was just crawling. I'd have to put on shoes um, with really intense orthotics and braces going up my legs. And I actually started using crutches at school because it was just a continuous problem that was not going away. Once it started getting really bad, we started looking into surgical options to try to fix the situation. And this is, one, this is where one of my first medical traumas ended up happening. It's kind of hard sometimes for me to even like think back to this time because it was such a traumatic experience, but I've done a lot of work to try to get over the trauma of this experience or try to move past it. I, we ended up, my father ended up taking me to one of the most highly renowned surgeons in the area and he promoted a very aggressive type of surgery was a lot more serious than what any of us originally understood. And so what this surgery is, it's basically like a full arch reconstruction surgery. So they take bone grafts, they cut your heel bone in half, and then they slide your heel bone over and they kind of slide it at an angle. Um, and then they shove in, they wedge in a bone graft in order to elongate your heel bone um, to basically create this bowstring effect on your tendons and on mostly on your ligaments so that it tightens up the ligament laxity in the area. So they did actually two of those grafts, one of them on my calcaneus, so one of them on my heel bone, and then one of them on my medial cuneiform bones. And it ended up lengthening my foot. <laughs> and so I actually, this was um, at age 16, I was very nervous about the surgery, but I was told at that point in time that it was the worst case of flexible flat foot that my podiatrist had seen and that they felt like it was never going to get better and that I was going to have horrible arthritis and it would eventually end up affecting my foot and my knee and my hip and my back and everything. And so if I didn't get the surgery that I would, they told me that I was going to be walking in braces going up my leg maybe for the rest of my life. So my dad's approach to medical treatment is always to get multiple different opinions, which I agree with, but 
the problem is that with when you're operating within a paradigm of medicine that by nature is a very aggressive paradigm that kind of treats things symptomatically and looking at only one one system or one part of the body as opposed to integrating the body as a whole then it doesn't really matter how many specialists you go see because they're all going to be trained within the same aggressive paradigm unless they're a functional medicine doctor or within a different specialty i even went as far in preparation for the surgery i went as far as to ask my surgeon who was a very well-renowned surgeon so renowned that he actually wrote an entire book um, he wrote a textbook on foot and ankle surgery that was extremely thick, like, I don't know, 400 page textbook, um, at least. And so I actually um, requested a copy of his book because I wanted to read through the entire chapter on my surgery. And I, at age 16, I taught myself all of the medical terminology, you know, what the transverse plane is, what, you know, what this bone is, what this bone is. I taught myself everything about foot anatomy. I watched even YouTube videos on the procedure. I did every bit of research I could. And I thought, okay, I know what I'm getting myself into. This makes sense. Like, it seems like it's my only option. Meanwhile, right before I got the surgery, there was another option that came out that I really wanted to pursue. It was something called, it was called the Hyprocure. It's like this uh, medical implant device. It's a stent that goes in between your, in between a space between your um, two bones. So it's between your calcaneus and your, uh, I think it's like, yeah, your calcaneus and your talus bone, I believe. So it's, uh, it's been a while since I've looked it up, but it um, actually prevents the space in your foot from collapsing. And so it's not in a joint space. It's actually just wedged in there and it's a reversible procedure. Um, so you can take it out if it doesn't work. And it had just come out actually two years before um, that point in time. So that was 2008. So it had just come out, I think in 2006 on the market. And so I found this in my own research and I was like, dad, I want to, I want to do this instead of that surgery that he's telling me because this, the surgery is like, it's irreversible. It's really intense. It's like you're cutting your bone, you're repositioning your bone. You can't change that. And I wanted to try the medical implant device instead. And my dad told me, no, as a rule of thumb, we only use things that have been on the market for like five to 10 years or more. So because it hadn't quite been on the market long enough, he told me it was a bad idea and that it was best to go with the with the opinion of the professional in the field. So I felt kind of disappointed, but I was like, okay, well, my dad knows better than me. So I think like intuitively, I really wanted to try that other option that felt less invasive to me, um, that is less invasive. I wanted to do the most safe procedure and that procedure is really simple procedure. Um, I mean, obviously things can go wrong with it, but compared to the procedure that I was about to get, which can result in like a bone non-union infection that could kill you. Like, you know, there's a lot of complicated things with the surgery. So, um, but this other surgery was just like a 15 minute procedure where you're not even put under anesthesia and you're walking within not that long. You can't even compare the two surgeries. It's like nine, they're, it's like apples and oranges. So anyways, I kind of reluctantly was like, okay, I guess this is my only option. So I ended up doing the surgery. And that was one of the first traumas of my life that really ended up resulting in PTSD. And I think I, I later researched this and I found that like, over half of the people who have a serious orthopedic surgery end up developing some form of PTSD afterwards because it can be really traumatic to have something that invasive in your body. Right before I went under anesthesia, they actually almost operated on the wrong foot. They were supposed to do both of my feet, but they, I wanted them to start with my left one because it was worse. And they actually, not only did they almost operate on my wrong, on the wrong foot, 
but they also almost did the wrong procedure because I had the nurse come in, you know, I'm a little 16 year old, like I weigh like a hundred pounds and I'm just sitting there on a gurney and the nurse comes in and she's like, okay, we're doing the right foot arthrosis, right? And I was like, and I knew, cause I read the textbook, I knew that an arthrosis is an arthroresis um, is a joint fusion surgery. And I said, no, we're not fusing the joint on my right foot. We are um, doing a bone graft procedure on my left foot. <laughs> it's a different surgery. And so she like ran back to the surgeon, checked the notes and she's like, okay. And so if I hadn't, like, if I hadn't noticed that, there's a very good chance that they would have just completely done the wrong surgery on the wrong foot. And I, and that sent me into one of the first panic attacks that I ever had in my life right before the surgery. And I was like crying. I was really upset. I remember telling my mom that I didn't want to do it because it was just very upsetting that they like messed that up. I remember my parents telling me, no, you're emotional right now. You've thought this out. You've researched it. You've really put a lot of effort into it. Don't worry. Like, you know, they've, they've cracked it. Like they're going to do the right surgery. Like we've double checked, we've triple checked with them. It's, it's fine. Tried to detach from my body and then they put me under anesthesia. And then the first thing that I realized when I woke up was that I was in horrible pain. So I woke up from that surgery and I was sharing, I was sharing a hospital room with another girl who is my age, who also had a surgery from the same surgeon earlier that day. And she was screaming and I was screaming and she was vomiting. And I just remember waking up feeling like I woke up to a nightmare. So they put like a local anesthesia in my foot, which didn't really cover the pain I had to have morphine drips around the clock. Like, I don't know how to describe how painful this surgery is. I have talked, I've talked to other people who have broken bones and have had injuries and, and I've had injuries. I've had falls before, but this surgery, like, yeah, this surgery was literally lengthening my foot to an unnatural anatomy and waking up like all of the tendons, all of the ligaments, like not only is it a trauma to the area, but you're stretching out all of the connective tissues in addition to that. So it was so like, nobody prepared me for that pain. Nobody could have prepared me for that pain. And I have later joined support groups for people who had that specific, uh, it was called a calcaneal osteotomy and a cotton osteotomy. I've joined support groups for people who had that specific surgery and almost everybody agrees that it's just barbaric pain. It's like nobody prepared them for the level of pain. It's just hard to really comprehend how bad it is waking up to having, because the foot is a really sensitive area. Like there's foot pain can be pretty bad. There's a lot of nerves there's high levels of innervation, complex tendons, complex like ligament structure in the foot. So that's why it's, people are really susceptible to having like chronic foot pain can be a really big problem. And when you have a surgery there that just stretches um, and creates kind of adhesions and scar tissues in every structure, it's just like really bad. I was, I had to stay in the hospital overnight and then I went home. I remember I was on pain medications around the clock and coming home on the third day after the pain medication finally, or sorry, on the third day after the uh, local anesthesia finally wore off, um, that's when I really started feeling the pain get unbearable. It got to the level where, and I had a high pain tolerance before, but this got to the level where I remember um, there was one night that I was screaming all night and nobody could stop me. And I was sweating and vomiting because of the pain. I couldn't even keep down my pain pills because of also the pain medications were making me feel bad. If something even touched my toe, it was just like, it felt like somebody, it felt like worse than amputation. I don't even know how to describe it, but I ended up screaming all night. And so I had to be readmitted to the hospital for pain management. 
And unfortunately, because I was in so much pain, I could not even be transported normally to the hospital because I couldn't sit upright because that would put, um, I had to keep my feet elevated all the time. Like I, I couldn't even go to the bathroom because if my foot went below my heart for a second, it felt like I was going to explode. So that meant that I actually had to have an ambulance come transport me to the hospital because I was unable to be in a normal position. So I had to be transported on a gurney. This level of pain felt like somebody was ripping my foot open with an atomic bomb, like over and over. But I went back to the hospital, was readmitted for a couple days on a continuous drip of morphine, also on opioids and everything and on muscle relaxers. So I was just completely drugged out of my mind. <laughs> Finally, I felt like the pain was at a level that it was more bearable. So I, I went home and it was just a really long process. I remember there were, nobody ever told me that it would take me months to be able to even sit in a chair. Actually, like it took months to be able to even sit upright. So I had to use a, finally I was able to use a wheelchair, but I was just like laid up on my couch. And if I had to move to go to the bathroom, it was like really quick. <laughs> um, so I missed a good part of school. And as a result of that, I had to like teach myself pre-calculus from a textbook while I was high on pain medication. And I wasn't able to attend school because I was told that the surgery was supposed to take six weeks to recover from. And so I thought, I did it in the summer and I thought, okay, no problem. I'm going to be back at school. So I did eventually get back to school. It took me a long time to learn how to walk again. I'd say about a year and a half to learn how to walk, but the area never really fully healed. And I kept thinking and waiting that like <laughs> thinking that my other foot was going to have a problem. But for some reason, I think it was just the fact that I was laid up in bed and resting vertically or sorry horizontally but the problem that was supposed to be in both of my feet actually just spontaneously kind of went away in my other foot so my other foot became normal again and I didn't really have the pain that I was having before so the type of person I am I tried to just say okay well I'm not going to dwell in the past maybe maybe that surgery was a mistake maybe it didn't need to happen but and there's a possibility that the pain could still come back in my other foot. So I don't know. I just tried to put the entire, the entire horrible situation, I tried to just put it behind me and move on with my life. And as soon as I got past that situation and was able to attend school again and was able to walk with a walking cast and everything, so things were starting to get back to normal, that's when both of my parents in the same year were diagnosed with cancer. So they were diagnosed with cancer and I know my mom had to go through chemotherapy and I was at a different school and I just remember really struggling with depression that year. I was taken to a doctor who referred me to a psychiatrist and they were really pushing me to go on to antidepressant medications. I didn't really want to be on medications, but I felt so miserable with, um, how I was feeling that I felt like maybe it was kind of my only option. And I was like 16 or 17. So I talked to the psychiatrist and she told me that, you know, untreated depression leads to like problems with brain development and that I really needed to be on these antidepressants and that it was really bad to not treat it bad side effects or like long lasting or permanent effects. And like, it does it damage the brain. And she reassured me that it doesn't, it's not addictive. It doesn't cause any of these bad effects. They're really safe. So kind of reluctantly, but feeling like it was my only option, I started taking the antidepressants. And actually at first it seemed to help me. It seemed to make me feel better. I don't know if it was the antidepressants or if it was just the fact that my parents both ended up going into remission from cancer and my situation improved and I was coming towards the end of my high school and just things were better in general. But I finally felt kind of happy for the first time in my last year of high school. 
And so I thought, okay, this is great. Maybe the antidepressants are working. But then slowly over time, I started noticing that I was having, I just remember feeling like really emotionally numb and just cognitively, like not as sharp as I used to be, but it was kind of the subtle effect at first. And I remember feeling um, just kind of completely asexual, which is a difficult thing for somebody who had never been sexual in, in their life before. So again, like I was like 16 or 17. So I didn't really connect it to the antidepressants, but knowing now what I know, I definitely know that it affected me that way. Towards about age 18 or 19, when I went to college, I really did not want to be on these medications anymore. So I tried to get off of them for the first time when I was 18. I thought, okay, my life is going in a good direction. I'm doing well in school. I can get off of them. Yeah. So I was on Lexapro and really kind of just wanted to get off of it. And that's when I discovered for the first time that it's really hard to get off of antidepressants because nobody ever warned me for, uh, about that. My psychiatrist definitely didn't warn me. She actually lied about it. She said it was there was no problem getting off whenever you want. So, I mean, it's ridiculous that she said that. But I then struggled with a really bad withdrawal. The first time I tried to get off of them, I sunk into a horrible depression that was worse than what I had before. But it wasn't situational because everything was going really well in my life. It was just that my brain chemistry was so off. It was just so altered. I tried to then, I was tapering at that point. So she did a taper that was way too fast, which I did not know at the time. And so I had to get back on them because I just couldn't function. I, it was either that I try to get off my antidepressants or I stay in school. I couldn't do both things at the same time because it was making me feel so horrible, just all of the withdrawal effects. So I ended up going back on them reluctantly. And the entire time, my father is also continuously trying to tell me that I should be on my medications, that I need to be more compliant with them, that I should not feel bad about taking them. And he even compared antidepressant use to his thyroid medication. He said, oh, well, you know, I have a problem with my thyroid and so I need to take medication for it. And you have a problem with your brain, so you need to take medication for it too. I just think that this perception that people who have depression, which is most frequently a situational depression for most of the people out there who are going through a hard time and then they see a psychiatrist and then they're told to put on to be put on antidepressants and then you start having a brain chemistry problem but i never had a brain chemistry problem to begin with i had a difficult circumstance and i was told that there was a problem with my brain and that i would never be happy unless i took these medications and trusting the professionals who told me that I needed these and also trusting my father who told me that I had some problem with my brain. That is something I'm still really angry about is that I did not have a problem with my brain. I was perfectly functional and I was put on these medications for no reason because I think I really could have handled that situation without antidepressants. And so I went on this battle of really struggling with my mental health in college. And what I mean by that is that it was a different struggle than what I had in high school. The struggle that I had with my mental health in college was, I would say, chemical. It was, my brain chemistry just felt so wrong a lot of the time. I started having really bad problems with depersonalization and dissociation. I felt sometimes like I would be walking by and I was like seeing through people. I never had any kind of psychotic episode or anything like that. Like I was always in touch with reality, but I felt like I was floating outside of my body and like I was detached and I never had that feeling before. And so when I told my psychiatrist about it, um, she just treated it as if I was just developing a new psychiatric condition. 
And I said, do you think it's from these medications? And she tried to deny that. <laughs> and so, you know, I kind of felt like it was from the medication. So that's why I wanted to get off of them. And nobody in my family understood that. So they were always trying to get me to stay on my meds. I need to be compliant. They were treating me as if I was born with a mental illness, when in reality, these medications were giving me mental disturbances that I didn't have before. I just had such a hard time with that. And then another incident that happened while I was struggling with this was that I had the HPV vaccination. So this was just yet another insult <laughs> to my body. Um, at that point in time, I, I thought that all vaccines are safe. I never really questioned it at all. Like it's just kind of assumed. But there was some hesitation around the HPV vaccine due to the amount of, due to some headlines and stories that were coming out of people having really bad reactions to it. Even my own cousin developed Guillain-Barre syndrome from this vaccine and she was paralyzed for a while and then she did recover. But I put the vaccine off because I was kind of hesitant about it. And then finally, my doctors really pressured and kind of bullied me into getting this shot. And so I got the vaccine. The first time I got it, a few days later, I had just a massive period of like brain fog, which I didn't understand at the time, but I was really struggling in school and I felt as if something was attacking my brain. And so that episode kind of passed after a few days, maybe a week. And did not connect it to the vaccine because it happened like a couple days after. And I never thought that I could, I should question a vaccine. I just thought they were safe. So then I got the next vaccine. And again, like I felt that my problems with anxiety and mental health and brain fog and just like, I used to be a really sharp person. And I was, I was starting to struggle a little bit more in school, like with my memory, with focus, with reading sentences over and over again with just feeling like detached from myself, just feeling really scattered brained all the time, not really clear headed. So I was starting to kind of struggle with that more. And by the time it was the third shot after that vaccine was actually right before I was going to leave to go study abroad in India. And I remember feeling as if some, just something had kind of attacked my brain. And I was in bed, like staring at the ceiling for hours, not able to think really, not really able to function, um, just completely blank, staring at the wall, staring at the ceiling. I felt kind of like I had a traumatic brain injury almost. And, you know, I talked to my psychiatrist about it and I was just told that I was like having anxiety, that it was a panic attack. Like, you know, I was like, didn't really think it was the vaccine. But again, when I told my doctor about what happened, she just immediately came to the conclusion that it must have been anxiety based. And so that's when I started being pushed on benzodiazepines, which was a horrible new chapter of my life. You would think at this point in my journey, you would think I would have woken up to all of these truths and I would have just started saying no to these medications. But when you're actually in the position where your mind is really compromised because you are actually on the medications and when you are under the guidance of a trusted physician, a trusted authority member, and they're telling you that you need these medications, that they're safe, that there's no way that, you know, vaccine could cause a reaction, that there's, you know, no way that <laughs> that withdrawal could last longer than a few weeks. It's kind of hard to have the strength to say, no, you're wrong. My experience is real. And what I'm going through is a valid experience. And I started taking benzodiazepine right pretty much around the time that I was starting to get those effects from the HPV vaccine that at that point in time, I didn't realize it was from the HPV vaccine. But looking back at all of my notes, my email records, like the timeline matches up perfectly with the shots from when I started developing all those issues. So 
I felt really desperate because I was like, the anxiety was just so bad in my head and it was not a situational anxiety. It was a really like kind of disturbed chemical anxiety where I felt just really like jittery and wired and foggy all of the time. So there's now that I physiologically yeah mess. yeah and I would kind of try to explain that to my doctors but they really wouldn't understand it at all they were like they would look at me like I was an alien and so they tried to diagnose me with all these like mental illnesses anxiety disorder or no sorry before it was social anxiety disorder because they said that you know I had social anxiety when I was a kid and then it turned into a generalized anxiety disorder that was just anxious all the time but the truth is that yeah I did have that social anxiety for psychological reasons but when I developed this general anxiety it wasn't for really any specific reason it was just like I was just anxious to be in my skin I think it was a combination of the antidepressants and whatever that HPV vaccine did to my brain and my nervous system, which it affects the brains and nervous systems of so many girls. And some women even become paralyzed from it. So I'm lucky that I didn't get paralyzed from that shot. But some people are not so lucky. So I survived the HPV vaccine, barely. And so yeah, that's when the benzodiazepines were pushed on me. And it was also really my father who pushed those on me as well, because he, again, he treated benzodiazepine as um, a tool to use for a condition to make your life, so you can make your life better. So again, it's like better living through chemistry. And he really tried to normalize it for me because I felt like really wrong about taking these medications and I didn't want to. And he tried to make me feel okay about it by saying, it's okay. I take Percocet when I have a headache. I take benzodiazepine sometimes as well. You shouldn't feel bad about it. You shouldn't feel stigmatized. So there's kind of this effort to reduce the stigma around taking drugs and to kind of make you feel more normal about it, even though it felt really wrong to me. With the benzodiazepines, I do you think that that made my situation worse? Some people have absolutely horrific experience with benzodiazepines. I can't say that I'm one of those people who experienced something like Jordan Peterson, like that didn't happen to me, but it did make my overall situation worse. Another thing that I started developing was body dysmorphia issues that I'd had since before, and those started getting really bad. And so I was seeing a psychologist for this, I was seeing a psychiatrist, and my psychiatrist told me that every time I felt an urge to binge on food, because that was kind of, I guess, how I cope with the stress. I was still getting like 4.0s in school, still doing extremely well in school. Even with all of this going on, I was still scoring the top of my class, like 400 person lectures, like doing really well. And my psychiatrist told me that because I was binging to cope with the stress. She said, if you have an urge to binge, just take a benzodiazepine instead. And I thought like, that sounds like a ridiculous thing to do, but I was also kind of desperate. So I started doing that a little bit. I struggled that way for about a year or so. And in the meantime, um, I had also been struggling since I was quite a bit younger with acne since I was a teenager, but it hadn't really been like cystic acne. It was just kind of like pimples here and there. But around that point in time, looking back, I think it had a, probably a lot to do with the medications that I was on uh, that I tried multiple times to get off and could not get off of them. My acne started to become more cystic and like those deep, like under the skin, like painful kind of cystic acne lumps that are just really annoying and uncomfortable. And throughout the years, I had been treating it with uh, birth control medication, which didn't really give me bad side effects, but it stopped working. And then I had also done many rounds of antibiotics. So it was just, this was a new problem that was starting to get worse. And my brother had a problem with this as well. And so, um, 
that is when the other chapter of my medical injury journey starts to begin because um, everything that I've just explained to you, like all of the struggles that I had before, um, that was all nothing compared to what was, what was about to happen next. I just wanted to give this interview and give this experience as kind of an overall perspective for what it is like to grow up as the child of a doctor and kind of living within that medical paradigm where it's almost as if medical treatments are kind of the only option that are even worthy of consideration because anything that's not a medical treatment to people who are really heavily indoctrinated within the system is considered to be not really very valid or not really um, not really proven, not really something that is a viable or respectable treatment method. Taking Accutane was the biggest mistake I've ever done in my life. That's something that I'll talk about in the next episode, which is dedicated solely to the dangers and the problems and the fraudulent research and the epidemic of people who have been permanently harmed by taking Accutane because there's so many people out there. But I really do feel like everything in my life, that every traumatic incident with a doctor, everything in my life that led up to this point, that led up to this ultimate decision of me to feel so powerless and so frustrated and so bad about myself and so kind of mentally compromised in terms of my inner strength and my inner clarity, uh, those are all the things that led up to me taking Accutane which is then the drug that led to my health just being completely demolished and my body being demolished after that. So, and so that's a, a great place to end it here with that cliffhanger of, you know, how much worse yeah. can it get? How much it worse, sounds yeah. like it's going to get a lot worse. Thank okay. you. Yeah, thank you very much for this, um, for this podcast. It's a really great idea for people to share their stories and know that they're not alone. Well, thanks to Rachel for sharing her experience of growing up in a family of physicians. And note that she is using a pseudonym to protect herself from and when in the healthcare system. Stay tuned for part two of the interview where Rachel's experience with medication and medical harm gets even more life-altering and disabling. If you would like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and all of the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. If you need the support of an experienced counselor for your own encounters with medical error or for living with a chronic complex illness, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Thanks for listening. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to others.